Anyone here afraid of the dark? You don't have to put up your hand if you don't want to. Darkness is one of those fears that most of us have as children, right? When the lights go out, uh, suddenly there are monsters under the bed, right? And there are creepy creatures lurking around the corner where our dresser used to be. I know in in my house, we had our fair share of nightlights and bedrooms and bathrooms. And I was always asking my parents to open up the door just a little bit, just a little crack, right? Just to let a little bit of light in. Uh, But it's a fear that most of us grow out of, for the most part, right? Except for sometimes, you know what I'm saying? It's a fear that most of us grow out of until we find ourselves somewhere that's really dark and like scary. Are you with me? I am a, I'm a summer kind of person. Like I love summer. I love the heat. I love uh, the sunshine. I love being outside. I love everything about summer. And so I'm the kind of person that has a really difficult time accepting it when the nights begin to get a little bit cooler, you know, and, and uh, when, when the days begin to get a little bit shorter. And so when that happens, I usually choose to live in a state of denial for as long as I possibly can. And a few years ago, somewhere around the end of December, I decided that I was going to go for a bike ride to Brantford on the trail. So sometimes I like to do every now and then in the summer. And it was later in the afternoon, I did some quick math, and I figured that I would have enough time to get there and to get back before, I, before it got too dark. And so I set out, and my ride to Brantford on the way there was beautiful. Sun was shining, the birds were chirping, it was great. But just, uh, just after I turned around to come back towards Simcoe, I ran into my first Dilemma, my phone died. And you know what that means? I wasn't gonna get any credit for the exercise that I was doing (laughs) on my fitness tracker. So frustrating, right? It was terrible. But I didn't have a choice, I kept going even though I wasn't gonna be getting any credit for it. Um, And before too long, I ran into my second dilemma. I realized that I'd miscalculated. Okay, so the sun was starting to set, and I still had a long way to go before I got home. And so suddenly, my casual, enjoyable bike ride became a race. It was me versus the sun. And it very quickly became clear that I was going to be the one to go home with a participation ribbon (laughs) to add to the collection. And so I was about 10 kilometers from home by the time it got completely dark. Uh, I, I didn't have any lights with me at the time. I've since bought some lights. I didn't have a phone, right? My phone was dead. I was out on the trail. And it was one of those times when it became clear to me that I am, in fact, still afraid of the dark. I could barely see what was up ahead of me. I was super freaked out that I was going to, like, run into something or hit a bump and lose control and go over my handlebars. I started freaking out about what might be hiding in the trees, you know? Like, I've heard there's a lot of coyotes and stuff around here. See that in the news a lot. I'm not entirely convinced that deer are as innocent as we think that they are. (laughs) Honestly, I've had some deer look at me 
in some pretty freaky ways where I was pretty sure uh, that they were thinking of violence. <laughs> There's something about darkness that can be really unsettling. There's something about darkness that makes us kind of feel disoriented. There's something about darkness that just kind of puts us on edge because we can't see what's coming at us. We don't know what the road ahead looks like. And that's true when it comes to physical darkness. But it's also true when we find ourselves in those darker seasons of life. When life as we know it gets interrupted and it feels like our world has been turned upside down. When we find ourselves dealing with a job loss or a relationship breakdown or the loss of a loved one or a global pandemic or when we look at our lives and feel the weight of the fact that they haven't turned out like we hoped that they would or when we look at the world and feel the weight of the fact that we're surrounded by so much violence and pain and suffering we often have a really hard time knowing what to do with those big, disorienting thoughts and feelings that kind of swirl around in us when the world feels dark. So let me ask you again. Are you afraid of the dark? We live in a culture that doesn't deal very well with grief. We're good at complaining. We can do that, right? We're good at outrage. We're good at social media posts. But those things are really usually just a cover-up for what's going on beneath the surface. In his book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Francis Weller says that we live in a culture of amnesia and anesthesia. We live in a culture of amnesia. We forget a forgetful culture. Throughout scripture, we see that the Jewish people were really intentional about remembering the stories that had made them who they were. They had rituals, they had festivals, they built monuments. They passed on their stories to their children so that they would remember the suffering that they had endured as a people and the ways that God had rescued them and the promises that he'd made to them. Again and again in the Bible, we, hear, we see this, right? God commands his people, he commands the Jewish people to remember. But we live in this culture that kind of operates at a frenetic pace, where we're busy and distracted, where we don't really give a lot of value to rituals or we don't spend a lot of time sharing the stories that kind of anchor us in a common history, our culture doesn't place a high value on remembering the stories and the experiences that make us who we are. And so when we bump up against circumstances that are painful and difficult, one of the most natural things for us to do in our culture is to try to move on and to just forget about it as quickly as we possibly can. We live in a culture of amnesia, and we live in a culture of anesthesia, where we are bombarded with all kinds of ways to numb our pain. Entire industries have been developed, really, to help us numb our pain. And whether we turn to food 
or online shopping, or Netflix, or alcohol, or scrolling social media, or overworking. Whatever it is, there's an endless buffet of ways to dull our senses to the pain that we would rather not feel. We live in a culture of amnesia and anesthesia, which is a sure sign that we live in a culture that doesn't do well with grief. And I think that sometimes it's actually an even bigger challenge for us in the church. Sometimes in the church, we feel like we need to kind of wear a mask and pretend like everything's okay. Sometimes we feel like expressing pain or uncertainty is a sign that we're lacking in faith. Sometimes we worry that admitting that we're struggling means that we're not thankful for the blessings that God has given us. And so if we're honest, psalms like the one we just heard can make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, right? Make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, did you listen? Did you hear the questions that came up during that reading? Questions asked of God. When will I see your face? When will I see your face? Why have you forgotten me? Have you ever asked those questions? I don't know if you've ever read through the book of Psalms. In in our worship time, we tend to just lean on the Psalms of praise and gratitude, and those tend to be the ones that we're most familiar with. But there are a lot of Psalms that are pretty raw. The Psalms raise questions and express feelings that most of us wouldn't dare to say out loud, especially in church. But here's the thing. Our strategy of numbing and trying to forget about our pain isn't good for us. Firstly, because as Brene Brown says, when we numb the dark, we numb the light. It's not possible to selectively numb emotions. We can't numb the negative feelings without also numbing the positive feelings. And so when we try to numb pain, we're also numbing joy. And secondly, because when we don't know how to work through our struggles and our pain, they always find other ways of bubbling up in our lives. Whether it's in bitterness or impatience or cynicism or anger or even in ways that impact our physical health. And so maybe the Psalms that make us the most uncomfortable are some of the passages of Scripture that we need to be reading the most. Not because they give us airtight, systematic theology, that's not what the Psalms are meant to do but because they invite us to bring our entire selves with all of our fear and pain and anger and with all of our joy and hope and gratitude before the God who's big enough and faithful enough to handle it all. The Psalms give us permission to say it out loud when things are not okay. In our own lives, and in the world. 
And with these little devices that we carry around in our pockets, we are more exposed now to the, all of the things in our world that aren't okay than we've ever been. And so we need the Psalms. We need the Psalms if we're going to stay awake and engaged to what's going on around us. The Psalms give us assurance that when we pray and worship, we aren't expected or required to censor or deny our feelings. We're called to lay it all down instead before our holy and compassionate God. God wants all of us. And the book of Psalms isn't just a collection of writings that were written down and then kind of tucked away on some sort of special shelf. This was the prayer book of the Jewish people. These were the prayers and the songs that shaped the way people understood God and their relationship to him. The Jewish people were raised to understand that they didn't need to be afraid of the dark. And we see this actually in Jesus. The Gospels tell us about three different times that Jesus cries. Think about that for a minute. God became flesh and blood, and he entered into our world. And when he experienced the pain that comes with being human, he cried. The first time we hear about Jesus crying is when his good friend Lazarus dies in John 11. Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, had sent for Jesus, hoping that Jesus would come and would be able to heal him. But Jesus doesn't get there in time. And Lazarus doesn't make it. And so when Jesus shows up, there's all kinds of people there, grieving. Mary and Martha are, are devastated. And they come to Jesus with the same questions that we sometimes come to Jesus with when we suffer. And the where were you questions. If you were here, he would have made it. And if you know the story, you know that Jesus goes on to heal Lazarus. No, sorry, he doesn't heal Lazarus. He actually raises, it's better, it's better. He raises Lazarus from the dead, right? But before he does that, he takes the time to slow down and to fully enter into the pain of the circumstances, to enter into the pain that his friends were experiencing. Right? And scripture tells us Jesus wept. Right? He weeps with his friends. The second time Jesus weeps is as he's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey leading up to his crucifixion. Luke tells us that as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he looked out over the city and he wept. He wept because God's people just didn't get it. Right? As he wept, he said, how I wish today that you of all people would have understood the way to peace. And the third time Jesus cries is in the Garden of Gethsemane where he begs God to take away the suffering that he knows he's about to experience on the cross right? and ultimately surrenders to his father's will. Luke tells us that there Jesus was in such agony of spirit that his sweat 
fell to the ground like drops of blood. Three times we hear about Jesus crying. Once for his friends, for the suffering they were experiencing, once for the brokenness of the world, and once over the agony that he knew that he was about to experience. And I used to think that the most significant thing about having a savior who cries was that it shows us his compassion and his vulnerability. And I think that's true. Of course, that's true. And that's really meaningful and important. But I think there's actually more going on here too. I think that in these moments, Jesus shows us that God does something powerful in us when we are willing to be vulnerable with him. I think he shows us that there's something about bringing our grief and our pain to God that opens us up and lets his spirit heal and transform us in the deepest parts of who we are. There are things that God teaches us in the darkness that we're just not able to learn in the light. So what does it look like to be people who aren't afraid of the dark? To be people who trust God with the most raw and vulnerable aspects of who we are? Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar and he wrote a book that looks at how God led Israel through seasons of loss and recovery and how we can draw on that for wisdom when we find ourselves in these moments where it seems like everything has been lost. And he wrote this book actually in response to 9-11. But it has a lot to teach us as we continue to process everything that we went through over the last three years and as we walk through other struggles uh, together as a community and within our own lives. And Brueggemann describes what he calls the three prophetic tasks of the church in seasons of upheaval. Or in other words, Three ways that the church is called to reflect God's countercultural kingdom when the world feels dark and uncertain. And the first prophetic task that he talks about is facing reality. It's naming what has gone wrong. The Jewish people had deep beliefs about what it meant to be chosen by God. And they held on to those beliefs really tightly. As God's people, they expected blessing. They expected prosperity. They expected military protection. But things didn't go according to plan. They couldn't hold up their end of the covenant. They ended up being conquered by the Babylonians and sent into exile. And they had to come to terms with a life that looked very different than what they had hoped for or imagined. And we're living in a world that's very different than they were. But still today, our culture feeds us all kinds of promises about how we can make sure that we will end up healthy and wealthy and, and happy and drop-dead gorgeous. And we all have ideas about how the world is supposed to work. We all have ideas about what our lives are supposed to look like. And when that goes off course, 
the temptation for us is to double down and deny it or to just avoid thinking about it altogether. But when we do that, we end up getting stuck. Healing begins when we surrender to reality. Sometimes slowly, sometimes it takes time and that's okay, but healing begins when we accept that the thing that we did not want to happen has happened. Or when we accept that the thing that we hoped would happen didn't happen. Healing begins when we name what's true and when we sit with God in that reality. The second prophetic task that Brueggemann talks about is grief. It's grief. It's letting ourselves actually feel the pain and find ways to express it so that we can move through it. In a culture that's really good at forgetting and really good at numbing, grief is countercultural. Grief is hard. Grief is uncomfortable. But grief is the appropriate response to the brokenness and the suffering around us. Because we weren't made for it, right? Things are not as they should be. We were designed for Eden. We were designed to live in a perfect world in perfect communion with God and with each other. But in Genesis 3, everything went wrong, right? And from that point on, death and evil and suffering have been a part of our reality. And the kingdom of God is here. We know it's broken into the world in Christ, but it's also not yet fully here. And we see signs of that all around us, right? Grief is the appropriate response to a world that's not as it should be. And each one of us moves through grief differently, right? There's no right or wrong way to do it. Jesus wept and cried out to God and prayed. In the Psalms, we have collections of songs and poetry that people wrote to express their grief. In other places of scripture, we hear about people tearing their clothing, right? This was an ancient practice of grief. Some of us need to talk through grief with others. Some of us need to find time to work through it in solitude. Some of us tend to our grief through art or music or by spending time in nature. We all kind of process grief differently and on our own timeline, right? There's no deadlines. But there's something about grief that holds true for all of us. And it's this. We cannot do it on our own. As we face our grief, we need God. We need God and we need each other. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 1 verses 3 and 4. Paul says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father, and listen to this, and the source of all comfort. God is the source of of all comfort. And in our grief, we can trust that we are being held in his perfect love. And in that, we can experience this peace that scripture talks about that passes understanding. 
even in the midst of our pain. Verse four, he comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. We need God and we need each other. And being part of a community means showing up for each other when we go through hard times. Not to try to fix it, but just to be present, to extend love, to comfort each other with the comfort that we have received from God. Sometimes we're afraid to let ourselves feel pain because I think we worry that we're going to get stuck there. But grief is actually the way through it. Grief is how we bring our whole selves before God and open ourselves up to his work within us so we can let go. So we can let go of the things that we need to let go and so we can open up our hands to receive the gifts that God wants to give us as he leads us one step at a time into new beginnings. The third prophetic task that Brueggemann talks about is hope. Hope. In a world of darkness and suffering, in a world of cynicism and despair, we are called to be people of hope. That is countercultural. And whatever's going on in our lives and in our world, we can hold on to hope right? because we know that God hasn't walked off the job. He's still faithful. He's still good. He still keeps his promises. The Psalms that we started with draw a beautiful picture of what it looks like to hold on to hope even as we wrestle with hard questions and pain. Because the author of the Psalms just reminds himself again and again, right? He comes back again and again to what he knows to be true about God, to the ways that he's experienced God in the past. He remembers time of worship. He reflects on God's kindness. And he looks ahead with confidence that God's going to help him that God's going to renew his joy, and that he will worship God again. There's something about looking backwards at the ways that we've experienced God's faithfulness in the past that tethers us to hope. And as followers of Jesus, we look ahead into the future knowing that our God is a God of resurrection, That God specializes in bringing dead things back to life, in making all things new, in making pathways in the wilderness and creating rivers in dry wasteland. And so regardless of how dark things may seem or how disoriented we might feel, we can trust that God will lead us through it. And he will open up new possibilities that we can't even see right now, that we never could have imagined. And ultimately, our hope is tethered to this future promise that we have, right? That Jesus will come again and he will renew and restore all things once and for all. And we will live healed and whole in his presence forever.
as he was preparing his disciples for his crucifixion, Jesus said this in John 16. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Something really reassuring to me about the fact that Jesus promises, he guarantees we're going to have trouble in this world. It's not a sign that he's forgotten us. It's not a sign that we're outside of God's will. It's not a sign that we're doing something wrong. It's part of living in the broken world that we're living in. And we can take heart and rest in the promise that Jesus has overcome the world. He's overcome all of it. Last week, I was listening to a talk by someone who runs a ministry in downtown Toronto, and he works with people who are living in poverty and dealing with addiction and that kind of thing. And one of the things he said really struck me. This was a seminar for church leaders, and and what he said is, if you're not sending, you're entertaining. If you're not sending, you're entertaining. In other words... If we don't leave from our gatherings with a sense that we're on mission, with a sense that we are called to extend God's kingdom to the world, then we're missing it. And it got me thinking about what it means to be sent. About what it looks like to be somebody who reflects the presence of Jesus in the world that we are living in. And often when we think about being sent, you know, we think about traveling overseas, missions or uh, working with poor and marginalized people or just telling people about Jesus and, and it's all those things. I think it's more than those things. I think that in our culture of amnesia and anesthesia that this is part of what it means to be sent. Being people who are willing to walk through other people's pain alongside them. Being people who have the courage to speak the truth about suffering. Being people who grieve the ways that this world is not as it should be. And people who hold on to hope in the midst of it. Who are able to hold on to both sorrow and joy at the same time. Who keep our eyes open for the ways that new life is breaking in all around us. Because we have a God who invites us to bring our whole selves to him and who meets us exactly where we are and who leads us step by step into resurrection. I'm going to close with part of a blessing by Kate Bowler. And the worship team can come on up to the front. She says this, Blessed are we who discover We are loved and held in arms that are strong enough to hold that which we cannot. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you are a God who sees us, that you are a God who is with us, that God, you know the deepest, darkest things that are going on in our hearts, you know, things that we're scared to say out loud, you know, the things that we hide. And God, in that you love us and you promise that you will meet us there and lead us into healing and resurrection. 
God, we thank you that you are faithful, that we can rest in your promises, that we can rest in your strength, that when we we go into worship, I'm just going um, to take a couple of time, uh, minutes um, just to take some time to, to reflect. One of the ways that we move through grief, tethered to hope, is by practicing gratitude in the midst of it, by keeping our eyes open for the ways that God is still showing up and giving us gifts even as we go through pain. And so we're just going to take a couple of minutes, and I hope that we move forward from here. And as Lindsay said, right, continue to work through this stuff and process this. But just, just right now, we're just going to take a couple of minutes to reflect on the things that we're thankful for and the things that we're grieving. Maybe things we've been trying to avoid that we need to just name before God and book an appointment with him later <laughs> to work through. Um, so, yeah, just take a moment to center yourself in God's presence resting and relaxing in the fact that he is here. That he's as close as the air that we breathe. You are held in his love. And just take a moment to name before God the things that you are thankful for. Big, big things, small things, doesn't matter. What are the gifts that God has been giving you? Take a moment to name before God the things that you're grieving, the things that are hurting, the things that you need his comfort and his peace and his power within. And just name those and hold those before God now. we come before you with all of our hope, our joy, our gratitude, and our sorrow, our pain, our questions, our doubts, knowing, God, that you are big enough to hold it all, to receive it all. I pray, God, that we would be people who really believe that, who live that, and who experience deeper healing, live lives that are more alive, as we experience your new life. Amen.